For holiday gifts that'll speak to you, visit the NPR shop, especially if you speak with your tongue placed squarely in your cheek. Take a look around at shop.npr.org. And one other thing, podcast listeners, if you've been enjoying Bullseye and you want to keep it going, the best way to do that is to throw a little support to your local NPR station. That support allows us to keep doing our thing. Go to stations.npr.org, find your local station, donate what you can, and tell them that Bullseye sent you. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Have you seen the work of Pedro Almodovar? You have a favorite of his movies? There's a lot to choose from. He's made 34 over four decades. He's a huge celebrity in Spain. I mean, like, so famous that he can't really leave his house. He peppers his movies with references to his older work, maybe the occasional personal detail. But for a writer who's done as much as he has, he says that he doesn't like writing about himself. He doesn't even keep a journal. And it's a pity because it is. it will be, I mean, now that I'm 60-something, it will be a wonderful material uh, to add to some characters. And I really would like to, to remember everything that I experimented. But I, I couldn't. But it's true that my life, my whole life, is in the 20 movies that I did. Not like in the character of a filmmaker, but behind any other characters. So perhaps that's why I don't want to take notes and to, to leave a biography. There will be no biopics about me. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Pedro Almodovar about the many films he's made, about what being an artist was like in Spain in the 80s, and what it takes for a guy like Pedro to write about women as ably as he does. You know, I mean, you need to feel curious about what women are. We are surrounded by them. When many people ask me about how do I know uh, women, I always answer that it's not difficult. I mean... <laughs> They belong to the, to the same species than us. Later, you'll hear from Alexis Krauss of the band Sleigh Bells about how a song by Alanis Morissette inspired her to start writing music. The harmonica solo is definitely one of my favorite parts of the song. It feels very random, but it works. Like, I would never write a song and think, I'm going to put a harmonica solo in it. But when I hear this harmonica solo, I'm like, yes, of course. <laughs> of course there's a harmonica solo there. And then I will tell it to you straight. I have fallen hard for portraits of cows. Old portraits of cows. And I think that you should, too. Yes, we're serving public radio's core values. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Pedro Almodovar, the Spanish writer and director, is about to release his 34th film. It's called Julieta. Spain submitted the movie to the Academy as its choice for the Best Foreign Film Oscar. The film's based on a few short stories from the book Runaway by Alice Munro. It's almost a suspense movie about a middle-aged woman and her attempts to reconnect with her estranged daughter. 
Petro Moldovar. Welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I, I, am. I, I, loved, I loved your movie. Um, I had never seen any of your films that weren't funny. And this movie I read was intentionally not funny. <laughs> yes, it's true. It is true. I wanted to change for a while, I mean, for this movie. But, you know, I mean, this, I wanted to make a drama, a real and austere drama. So I take away any sense of humor. But, you know, even during the rehearsals, sometimes appears situations that were funny. And uh, we did it, I mean, with the actors, because it's good, it is good that they, they can experiment in themselves, a situation that sometimes they are don't appear in the movie. But uh, at, at the end of the day, I, I, I quit it, and I put it the more sober uh, take. I, I think the fact that you chose the word austere is significant because yep. it's not just not a funny movie. Um, it's a movie that in many ways is about the tension of emotion that's being held. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of there's not crying in the movie much either. No, 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 no. I was no that was for me something very significant and also that I said for example to the actresses there is a lot of tragedies in the movie and uh, but there is also big ellipses and then the more painful uh, moments happens when we don't see them. So I mean I I wrote the sequence after that tragedy. So I asked to the actresses to be very sober and not to cry. Uh, why did you want to make a movie that was this austere? Well, perhaps because, you know, it was a change in my career, but basically because I, I felt in love with three short stories of Alice Munro. And then, and then you know, these this these stories demands me as director uh, to do it in that in that way because there is I mean when you finish the, the the first draft really the draft asks you a way the best way to be told uh, to be narrated to the spectator and since the beginning I got the feeling it was an intuition that uh, I should be very restrained. And this is what I did. And now I think uh, that intuition was right. Did you write the first draft in Spanish or English? No, Spanish. No, uh, I um, even even there was a moment then that I thought to make it into English in English because well, it was the origin, um, the origin of the. Alice Munro is Canadian, right? He's Canadian. Yeah. Yes, Alice Munro is Canadian. Uh, so, but I, at the beginning, I thought to make it in the state in New York, but I wrote it in Spanish, in Spanish, and uh, but I was not completely secure about the knowledge of the language and also about, uh, I mean, about myself, shooting in English, and then I I left the project and I went home and I keep it in my desk. This is not unique. I mean, this you 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 have to know. I mean, if you're a writer. Uh, you have to know when you have to leave uh, the material, and the material in, in sometimes in your desk is growing, is growing in a very mysterious way, and uh, but no, you, you shouldn't shoot immediately all the ideas that came to you. No, no, there is a time 
to get it mature and to ever cook it. You really love to rewrite material, right? I have to. I mean, it's uh, really, but I enjoy it, true. Uh, at the beginning, the first the first draft appears quite quick. Um, and it's very exciting, also very confusing because the story takes many directions. There is a moment where you have to decide just exactly the pathos of the story and just to take away the rest. And, uh, and little by little, you know, the stories are growing with rewriting. And it is a fascinating experience because it's like you are reading a novel and then you read the first two lines and you are hooked about that story. But there is, I mean, if, if you want to know how it follows, you have to write it. And that is, that, that is a process that continuously is like that. I mean, at the same time, you are like the first reader of what you are doing with the surprise that is supposed to have a reader. But at the same time, you are creating that. Did, did Julieta become uh, something different from what you thought it was going to be when you started it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes you know you start and when when you finish, the, the the material is completely different of what you thought at the beginning. I mean, even sometimes there is like a main idea that's pushed you to write, and then there is one moment then when that idea disappears. And uh, but it is very important because that that is like the light, you know, the inspiration that pushed you to work and to typewriting. Uh, so uh, always, you know, always uh, the material is adapting to reality. And al also even when I decided to make a movie and I'm shooting, um, there is also, everything is very alive. I would imagine um, that, you know, when you're making one of these films, you know, most of your films are about women, that part of that process of discovering what the film is involves getting together with your collaborators who are women, the actresses and the other people behind the camera who are women, and sort of listening to them and their feelings about the material. Yeah, is, well, is that true? Um, you know, I mean, you need to, f to, to feel curious about, uh, about what women are. And we are surrounded by them. And uh, when many people ask me about how do I know uh, women, I always answer that it's not difficult. I mean, <laughs> they belong to the, to the same species than us. Uh, so you, you just have to pay some attention. Um, at least in, in Spain and during my whole life, uh, the women that I that I live with, or that I work with, or that I knew, they always were much more interesting than men, and richer our characters, and more risky. And uh, why? In what way? In, you know, in this, the male, including myself, um, uh, we have we. Uh, Tenemos, let me is trying to explain it into Spanish. Uh, tenemos un, 
un espectro menor de reacción. Like a narrower range of experience or yes, emotion. I mean, or... this is not, I mean, and we are, we don't behave now like the typical Spanish macho because the typical ma Spanish macho is some, someone tough without uh, any capacity for expression or for sentiments or things like that. But it's true that... Like a kind of like a John Wayne type yeah, figure, exactly, imaginarily. Exactly. This is unreal. And it was unreal at the moment, and it is much more unreal now. Um, but, but it's true that the male, for a cultural question, for a cultural thing, it is, I mean, the, we, the Spanish, are less expressive, let's say, than, than women. Uh, and at the same time, less funny and less rich. And also, I mean, just the, 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 the women that I was surrounded in my life, they have less prejudices than men. Um, so is, they are richer. Uh, and I mean, I made also quite a lot of, I mean, not, I mean, I made a lot of movies, 20. And, but at least in four of them, they were, the protagonists were uh, men. And that stories were less, I mean, I, I'm glad, for example, about Talk to Her, that it was with two men, the protagonists. But they the movies that I made with male character are somber than when I made it into female characters. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting about Julieta is that your movies are so beautiful. I mean, to look at, you know, beyond mm -hmm. grander beauty, but they're beautiful to look at, you know, beautiful spaces and spectacularly beautiful people. And, you know, they're so aesthetically vivid. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you thought about how that vivid quality would play against the fact that you are trying to make a consciously austere movie, that you are making a movie that's about loneliness and distant, mm -hmm. <laughs> distant faces, you know? Yeah, but for the first time in this movie, I use white, a white um, wall, but <laughs> it was, oh, okay. You know, it was it was a big experience for me because it was breaking it was, news. Almodovar <laughs> uses white wall. It is, you know, it was it is, and the, but anyway, I cannot use. Uh, I, I mean, I can't refuse to the something red. That will be. I mean, red is is like. Um, I mean, it's very important. It is the first color in my palette and green and yellows and they are always very vibrant i suppose be, uh, because i try even in this movie i try to make it darker in terms of colors and i i mean <laughs> only uh, i was able to to, to use uh, white but that was yet my stream <laughs> but i i always go back to to yes yes to the palette i used to because, you know, the, the movies for me were that. Uh, the movies that I remember in my childhood, they were always with very strong colors. Um, so I think when I started making movies, I always wanted to use um, uh, the colors of my childhood. Uh, I'm talking about the period of Technicolor. That it's, it's almost impossible for a 
chemist thing. I mean, in the I mean, there is not laboratories now, so it is. Right. I'm, I'm talking about analogic system, um, but I always have in my mind, you know, the colors of that period of. Oh, I mean, when I was a childhood. So I mean, that movie in color of uh, Hitchcock. This is like naturalism for me. This is just the colors that I love in my movies. Was Alfred Hitchcock something that you were thinking about when you were making this film? Because in watching it, um, the you know there's no the narrative is nothing like a Hitchcock movie. You know, it's not like a a guy who falls into a, all the things that happen in a Hitchcock movie. But um, there is the emotional tension mm-hmm. um, and the mystery elements of it. Or feel very Hitchcockian, besides just vivid colors or whatever, and besides maybe a little bit of dun 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 yeah. dun on yeah. the soundtrack. <laughs> of course, yes, yes, I know, I know what you mean. Uh, well, you know, uh, Hitchcock was and is the master of of tension, even without, uh, I mean, taking away music of Herman and all that. Uh, and and in this case, in in Julieta, for me. Sometimes, sometimes I wanted to make it like a thriller. Uh, so, uh, in the movie, sometimes I treated um, this uh, this way for Julieta to look after her daughter in in a kind of mysterious way, uh, a mysterious for the spectator that doesn't understand why, for example. Um, a lady that uh, is thinking about going to Portugal with her lover suddenly meets someone in the street, uh, and this girl talks to her about about the, the daughter, and she, in this moment, she decided um, just not to go to Portugal, to break with her life, to go to live in another place, and just to walk in Madrid, try to be visible. This is really very mysterious, and the, and even and this is a drama that tells the difficulties uh, about the relation in, to the family, but uh, that tension it is in the in the movie, and I like to just to get that tension in simple things and simple situation. I mean, a kind of sequence that the the spectator can't recognize it, um, but with this kind of tension. You'll hear the rest of my conversation with Pedro Almodovar after a short break. And he'll tell me what being a gay artist was like in Spain in the years right after Franco. And about his new wave band's hit single, Voy a Ser Mamá. Yes, of course Pedro Almodovar had a new wave band. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. As you look back on the past year, you can listen back, too. New NPR podcasts and old favorites are waiting for you on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Dive back into new seasons of Embedded, How I Built This, Invisibilia, and Code Switch. Sneak away from the holiday party, your family, or whatever, and listen in. NPR podcasts are ready to make your holiday escape better. Listen anytime at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Blue Headphones. For 20 years, many of your favorite artists have used Blue microphones in the studio. Now, Blue's radical headphone design lets you hear new details in your favorite music. Find out why Esquire magazine called them the perfect headphones. Visit the store at blue-headphones.com. 
and use the coupon code NPR for a special price. Blue. Carpe Eardrum. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Pedro Almodovar. His latest movie, Julieta, plays in theaters later this month. A big part of Julieta takes place in the 80s. And, um, you know, I was a kid in the 80s, and I don't remember what was special about it um, because I was, like, learning to read and stuff. Um, But uh, I, I wonder what was special to you about that time. Well, you know, for me, um, for Spain, it was a very, I mean, a very significant decade because we recovered the democracy for the country uh, after being kidnapped during four decades by one dictatorship. So, yeah, I mean, I cannot explain how important is that. It is, and also how important it is to be young at that moment and to take advantage of that situation because it was a big explosion of liberties, I mean, freedom in every sense. And, um, and above all, if you are young, you really can enjoy very much what was happening. So, so you know, for me, I mean, Julieta, when, when she starts in the movie, it is 85. So she's a, she's a woman that belongs to that decade. That means someone very, very free. Because, I mean, the the sexual freedom for us took more time than for the rest of the country. I mean, we should wait, uh, I mean, just this, um, like, 20 years. It didn't happen exactly in the 60s, but in the, in the 80s. So um, that moment is, was... Uh, for me, I mean, for me, very, 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 very important, and also for the character. I wanted to tell that uh, this is a girl um, that her relation with religion is different. is um, is not Catholic, is secular, and she's the owner of her body and of her decision. So that was very important for the character and for me. Is that something that feels to you now in Spain like it's gone in the other direction? Well, you know, the situation now is it's really very difficult to explain and very bad situation. I think during the um, almost four decades uh, of being in a democratic system, now the system really doesn't work. This is awful to discover that and awful to feel it. Um, but we have two huge demonstrations um, because we we vote twice. We have two elections in, in this year and um, nothing happened. I mean, the different parties didn't arrange to make a government that reflects uh, the result of the election. Uh, so it is really a very, very bad moment for us. Very bad moment. A lot of corruption, uh, more than ever, and and also you know the the feeling that you don't feel represented by the politician that they are there. I mean, trying, trying to just to, 
I mean, they don't represent us, really. And this is something that the Spanish people in the streets, we are telling, screaming that that line that no nos representan, they don't represent us. Uh, since, let's say, mm, 2011, uh, 2011. And the situation didn't change. So now, really, we don't know what is going to happen because perhaps there will be a third election that is a, is a disaster. But what is really dangerous is that we now don't believe about the system with different parties. Let's talk. If you have if you have an answer for that of a solution, just <laughs> yeah, please let us know. <laughs> just write a postcard, send it to okay. Pedro Almodovar, courtesy of Spain, Europe. <laughs> Put it in the mailbox. Remember to use two stamps. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, I want to I want to talk some more about the eighties because I have this. You know, we can't play a lot of clips from your movies because they're in Spanish. It doesn't make a lot of sense on the radio to people who don't yeah. speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. But I do have this clip of your band, uh, a duo called Almodovar y McNamara. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the two of you and, and bandmates in 1983, I think it is, performing a song called Voy a Ser Mamá. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, and what what is it? What does that mean, roughly speaking, in English? Yeah, well, the name is "I'm gonna be a mother." I mean, yeah. I, will, I will have a baby. And um, uh, well, I have to say that it was. I mean, uh, Almodovar, it was me. McNamara, it was a guy, a friend of mine. We were like, I don't know. I mean, we were like disguised, not exactly as drag queens, because uh, we were too grotesques. Uh, we were not beautiful in that, so we we trying to be like like housewives on stage singing that. Um, I mean, at the origin, I, I what I tried because I was the uh, I wrote the I wrote the lyrics. You know, it's a kind of manifesto against uh, anti-abortion because I remember at the moment that there were big big posters in the street with a hand of a little baby, uh, and the line was, uh, please don't kill us, that it was so pornographic. Of course, they were, I mean, the ultra right behind that, that then my answer it was just to write the song saying, uh, I'm going to be a mother, uh, I will have a baby, I will dress up uh, as a girl, and I will threw it uh, to the wall. Lo estamparé en la pared. I will call him Lucifer. <laughs> Le llamaré Lucifer. Le, uh, I will try him to live uh, by prostitution. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this feels... As subtle as that. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I can see, you know, my Spanish isn't strong enough to get much past the title, but I can see in watching this video, like, you may have undersold the extent to which you are wearing amazing outfits. He's a little more, he's a little femier than you. He looks, he's dressed a little bit more like a woman than you are, but you're both dressed 
If I mean, if you're supposed to be housewives, you're very new wave housewives. Yeah, but you know, and- it, it was the period. <laughs> you know, it was the post-punk period. So we were really, really. I mean, punk was very. So we were very, very aggressive. No, aggressive in the, into the words and t- trying to be entertaining. Uh, but a drag queen tried to be very attractive, very spectacular. Uh, we were more trying to be a parody of that. So, um, and then it's, 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 it's something different. You know, I, I, I mean, as a singer, we were always in that disguise. Um, but we finished, we finished in 83. Because, you know, we were so successful in Spain. I mean, we did, I did it because, for fun, because it was really funny just to be on stage singing like that. And being successful and people really enjoying it. So there was a moment that uh, we became so, uh, so famous and also people really loved to be outraged. I mean, they were looking for scandal. And when I felt that they demand me to be uh, outrageous, then I said, oh, then I get bored. So right. I quit it. And also, I, I mean, I, I wanted to keep on making movies. Yeah. It was parallel, you know. I seen when, also when I was doing movies. Well, let's take a listen to Almodovar y McNamara, uh, featuring my guest Pedro Almodovar, uh, singing on Spanish television in, in Someone said to me on Facebook when I mentioned that you were coming in today, and I mentioned that I had seen this video, they said, well, you know, New Wave was so much more exciting in Spain than in the United States because it was political, that there was this inherent thing going on, which was, you know, Franco died in 1975, and so it was really the blossoming of this country. Absolutely. Whereas in the United States, it was more like, wouldn't it be fun if we, if we wore a, a, like a lace collar? You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a, you know, a, a purple uh, yes, rude yes, boy yes. overcoat, yes. you know? Yes. I remember. I remember that. No, you know, no. For, for Spain, it was something essential. Um, we were not only imitating the new wave of England, because, you know, I mean, the, 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 mm, we were always paying a lot of attention to London and Manchester and New York and L.A., uh, musically talking. So, uh, but, you know, with the coincidence of the new democracy in Spain, you know, um, for, I mean, above all, in the in the musical scene, it was something so big, so alive, that uh, really, I mean, more than in cinema. If you want to know what was happening in, in Spain during the 80s or late 70s, you have to listen to the songs uh, because that song represents all, I mean, the kind of type of living that we were. Uh, and it was, yes, it was, I think also here, it was a fantastic moment. I'm very, muy <clears> fructífero. <throat> uh, but, um, but for us, it was, I, I think... I mean, if, if I think about the other periods, the, I mean, the 90s and this century, um, 
the the more creative moment in the last 40 years in Spain were were the 80s. What was it like to be gay in Spain in 1980 or 1983? Well, it depends where you live, you know. Uh, Spain is a very variated country. So, I mean, for example, in my case, it was, I didn't have any problem since the beginning. And I was out all the time. I mean, we really, I really didn't need to talk about it. Even when you were, even when you were like a teenager or? Yeah, yeah. Depends. I think I was strong enough to, uh, to be myself. Uh, also depends how, how you feel. And, um, I mean, the, the, the worst part, it was when I was, an adolescent and, and, a, and a child in living in small countries like La Mancha or Extremadura. That then it was when it was uh, rougher or more tough. But even in that moment, I, I didn't have problems. But, you know, it doesn't mean that gay people don't have problems during, I mean, during that decade. Um, in Madrid, Madrid, it was always a very open place. Also, for example, if you go to the south of Spain, always it was like cultural, very, very open in terms of sexuality. But um, but but after the eighties, I mean, during the eighties, it was really a sexual revolution. Uh, it was not so classified like being gay or being heterosexual, or being uh, transsexual, or uh, we all, fuck, we all, <laughs> all of us. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was a great moment because everybody were experimenting. So, I mean, in that uh, way, the gay uh, guys, we took advantage of that. And it was, um, and we always were mixed. That was make uh, Madrid an incredible place to go. And it was really something amazing. I mean, and it was much more fun than now. <laughs> something that I do remember from the 80s is that I grew up in San Francisco, and I remember that when I was 8 and 10 and 12 years old in the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s, that people in my life died of AIDS. Yeah. Um, know, my neighbor died, and one of my mom's best friends yeah. died, and some people from church died. And if in 1983 everybody was in a pile having sex, as you describe, <laughs> roughly speaking, was there an AIDS crisis 10 years later? Yes, yes. It was perhaps a little late than, I mean, I was aware because I was, at that moment I, I came to New York very often. Uh, and I was aware of that really at the moment when it appears at 83 or 84 I start having friends here basically here that die by AIDS um, so it's true that in Madrid it was a big party and not only in terms of sexual freedom but also with drugs um, you know, immediately everything was so open for the young people that we we had a lot of. I mean, we we did a lot of drugs, and uh, and uh, yeah, 
it was wonderful. But at the same time, I mean, just, I mean, the heroine for, for my generation, it was like our war of Vietnam, you know. Um, I lost many, many, many friends um, because of, uh, of drug, drug abuse or an accident with drugs. So um, I think it was a wonderful moment, but uh, we have to, to also, we have to pay an extreme price. Uh, that's life. Uh, if I had to make um, storytelling of that, I couldn't avoid this part, as you mentioned it. And everything was together. How do you think that process from this, you know, joyful world of we got rid of our dictator and we have democracy and we can be artists and we can say what we want and we can do what we want and we can sleep with who we want to the reality of, um, you know, the reality of heroin and HIV? How did well, it change your art? Yeah, you know, that it, that arrived to Spain a little later than here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was conscious because, as I told you, I saw since the very beginning friends, good friends in New York that, uh, that died. Uh, so, I mean, that conscience arrived a little late. Well, that changed. Of course, our behavior changed with that. And also it was a good excuse for the Catholic Church to, because, you know, I mean, just to, to be against this kind of freedom, sexual freedom. So I always was very, very aware uh, and keep on talking about mm, liberties in terms of sex. Uh, I kept on talking about passion because passion, it was very important in my movies, in my life, and also that you shouldn't refuse what your own nature gives you as a gift. We'll continue my conversation with Pedro Almodovar after a short break. The world-class writer and director will tell me about how his migraine headaches have made him so sensitive to light, he wears sunglasses almost all the time, which is tough when, you know, you're a movie director and light is your job. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Mrs. Fields, who wants to help you delight your friends, family, and clients this holiday season at MrsFields.com. It's easy to send handcrafted treats to anyone, anywhere. Choose from classic chocolate chip, hand-frosted buttercream cookies, or rich and flavorful bunt cakes, all baked fresh and packaged with holiday cheer. To order, visit MrsFields.com and use code NPR to save 20% at checkout. It also lets Mrs. Fields know you appreciate NPR, too. Hey, Bullseye listeners, if you happen to live in the New York City area, boy, have I got great news for you. Bullseye and I are very proud to present our second Bullseye Comedy Night at Radio Love Fest at BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music in Brooklyn. We have an amazing night of comedy lined up for you tonight. It's going to be hosted by my counterpart, Guy Branham, from our sister show, Pop Rocket, who is literally maybe the funniest person I know. He is so brilliant and hilarious. Just got a new TV show, incidentally. He's going to be joined on stage by Solomon Giorgio, Maeve Higgins, Hari Kondabalu, 
and Phoebe Robinson. Yes, the Dope Queen herself. It is going to be a real blast. It's coming up in February, February 11th at the Harvey Theater at BAM. You can find more information at BAM.org. Our thanks to BAM and WNYC for letting us put together this thing. I couldn't be more excited about it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Pedro Almodovar, a writer and director. He's got a new movie. It's called Julieta. It comes out this month. You'll also hear later on on the show from Alexis Krauss of the band Sleigh Bells on the song that changed her life. Uh, spoiler alert, it's Alanis Morissette. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye's sister show. It's a panel show, discussion show uh, about pop culture and everything that we love about it. Host Guy Branham and his team just hit 100 episodes. It keeps getting better and better. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this week on Pop Rocket, we are talking about The Crown, the most expensive show Netflix has ever made, and the media legacy of Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, you know Guy Branham loves The Crown. Pop Rocket, find it in iTunes or on your favorite podcasting application. It's Bullseye. My guest is the filmmaker Pedro Almodovar. His latest movie, Julieta, will be in theaters December 21st. I read um, somewhere that you get migraine headaches. Is that true? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, too. Um, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a huge part of my life that um, is very difficult to explain to other people. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for other people to understand. Um, and I wonder how it affects your life. Well, you know, I, it, it changed completely my life. Um, the type of living that I do now <laughs> because of headaches is much more solitary. Uh, and, um, and also, as is, I mean, at least in my case, is related with big noises and also with light. So I always use these black uh, glasses, not because I want to be glamorous. It's because I have a big photophobia. You're also very glamorous. <laughs> and, but, you know, this is so ridiculous to be, to be a director, a movie director, and being photophobic. Because I I work with light. I mean, light is even if you want to to shoot a sequence in darkness, the darkness is made by light. But it's true that uh, I mean the the pain and the loneliness of Julieta. Uh, I mean, she has for different reason. But I project my own pain and my own loneliness. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a strange thing to live with something that's so important in your life that you don't want to show to other people. I mean, I, I know that's been it's been like that for me that I I feel like if I say to other people, "Oh, I'm in pain," you know, they can it's not like you're missing an arm, you know, and you can't it just seems, at, at best case scenario, it just seems like you're complaining, but you also, know? But also, you know, because they cannot do anything. Yeah. And um, so I prefer not to say, I look, what I try is just to avoid uh, dinners and things like that. So, I mean, then the friends are losing your presence, but uh, I prefer not 
not to be because then it's also it's difficult to communicate, as you said, and also it's difficult to share. I I thought many times why I don't make a movie about this, but uh, when I, I never did a movie about really something so close to me or so personal. I mean, if I use personal experience, is it is always uh, treated in a different way, on the indifferent character that they are not myself. Um, but it's a pity that in my case, because, you know, if you are a writer, a writer has the best, I mean, for a writer, the worst experience are the better. Um, but is, but anyway, you know, I am, I never took advantage of that because um, I, mean, I think if I will create a character that I will hate it, that I'm, then I will give as a creator, I will give uh, migraine pain. But in, but my relation with the character, even they, they can be very negative, but I I love them and I try to explain them. So I'm not manichaeist. I'm just the opposite. Why do you think you don't want to translate your experience directly onto the screen? Why do you... Ref- I mean, it seems to me like maybe one of the reasons that so many of your characters are women is that it's a way for you to abstract your experience by one, you know, by one step? Uh, sometimes, not so often. Uh, sometimes, you know, the, the women are, or myself, or our men, behind. <clears throat> because, because, I mean, yes, pain is very similar. There is not a, a gender difference. I mean, if you are abandoned, uh, I mean, the movie is different. If you are a mother, that if you are a father... But it should be a terrible experience. And um, also, if you are abandoned by someone that you love, I mean, a lover, uh, for for a man or, or for a woman, it is very painful. I mean, the reaction of men are dull, are much more dull. Uh, and the, 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 the female are more spectacular. But, um, yes, some, I'm, some... I'm definitely dull. Listen, to My listeners let me know. They email me to tell me that I'm dull. <laughs> you are definitely dull? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh no, I don't know. And you are not mm, dull with me. Um, but um, you were you were asking me how? No, I'm in one hand. I'm shy. Uh, I never talk about my intimate life. <clears throat> but I mean, I mean, not to journalists, not even with my friends, uh, and also. And with the time I became so famous in Spain that uh, this is really bad to the moment of be sincere, talking about your own problem, even with your friends. So, I mean, I not only live in a very lonely way, but also I don't talk that much about the bigger problems of my life. And uh, I do the same thing in my in my movies because, I mean... It is a dull material for myself. I never have um, a kind of uh, journal. Uh, I never took notes uh, about my life. And it's a pity because it is. it will be, I mean, now that I'm 60-something, it will be a wonderful material uh, to add to some characters. And I really would like to, to remember everything that I experimented. And uh, But I, I, I couldn't. I went incapable to write about myself 
directly. But it's true that my life, my whole life, is in the 20 movies that I did. Uh, not like in the character of a filmmaker, but behind any other characters. You know, I prohibit to my brother that there will be no biopics about me. <laughs> and, uh, and also I refuse many times that just to or to write our self autobiography or someone to to write a biography about my life. I prohibit that. Well, I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to me about your work. I was racing she with you and I talked to you a lot about things that I that I didn't used to. Pedro Almodovar. His latest movie, Julieta, hits theaters December twenty first. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The band Sleigh Bells just released their fourth album, Jessica Rabbit. The duo, made up of singer Alexis Krauss and guitarist Derek Edward Miller, have always made a kind of fun, excited pop music with a sharp edge. On their early albums, Krauss usually sang softly over Miller's guitar, which was loud and shrill. On Jessica Rabbit, though, it's kind of the opposite. The guitar takes a backseat to Krauss's voice. She isn't just hovering quietly over the melody. She's belting it out at times. If you ask Krauss, it's part of her progression as a songwriter, maturity and awareness. And if you ask her where that first started, she'll point to one woman, Alanis Morissette. I had no choice but to hear you. You stated your case time and again. I thought about it. The first time I heard this song was after I purchased Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette, and Head Over Feet is probably one of the more soft, sensitive songs on the album. It's, it's not nearly as angsty and aggressive as the others, and I think I was really most attracted to the melody and that sort of melancholy that came along with it. I used to perform this song with my dad, who is a musician as well, and I would perform it with him at local restaurants and bars on the Jersey Shore and I would play the harmonica solo. So I don't know, this song was just very, it literally changed my life in the sense that I used this song to not only learn instruments, but I totally mimicked her her vocal style, everything from the sort of cry that she does to that little bit of growl, um, the cracks that she puts in her voice. You know, the, the people that he were he was playing for at the time, I think they just they just thought I was cute. They didn't really understand that this was like a, a creative expression for me and a representation of this like inner angst and this desire to become a woman and a teenager. The harmonica solo is definitely one of my favorite parts of the song. It feels 
very random, but it works. And I think a lot of the production on this album, because I, I think about this now as, as a songwriter, a lot of the production, I know it was Glenn Ballard and Alanis Morissette, it, it feels a bit cliche, but it just feels right. Like, I would never write a song and think, I'm going to put a harmonica solo in it. But when I hear this harmonica solo, I'm like, yes, of course. <laughs> of course there's a harmonica solo there. felt this healthy before. I've never wanted something rational. I am aware now. Uh, You know, it's just one of those simple pop songs that, you know, the the Beatles were able to do this. You know, Springsteen's able to do this. I mean, so many greats have, have been able to write these brilliant songs with just, you know, those those same four or five chords. And I think it's a real testament to the power of kind of thinking simply and, and writing a great melody and, and just focusing on great changes. I remember the first song that I really wrote was called Bird in the Cage. And it was about this kind of like captured woman who was trying to break out of her shell um, and liberate herself. And that was totally influenced by, <laughs> by Alanis Morissette and her, her themes on, on Jack Little Pill. This is Alexis Krauss, and that was the song that changed my life. That was Alexis Krauss, singer of the band Sleigh Bells, sharing the song that changed her life. Their latest album, Jessica Rabbit, is out now. It's Bullseye. Every week we close the show by giving you, the listener, a recommendation from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. If there was a museum in Venice or London, maybe Budapest, a museum completely dedicated to paintings of cows. That, friend, that would be my heaven. Now, I feel like I should clarify here. I don't particularly care for cows. I mean, I'm not anti-cow. I like a nice pastrami sandwich sometimes, but I'm not one of those people that loves everything cow with, like, cow print luggage cow spots on their car. I just think that now on National Public Radio is the time for me to admit that paintings of cows are my favorite type of painting. Actually, I can be more specific about that. Paintings of cows from around the second half of the 1700s to the first half of the 1800s. And not just paintings, actually. I guess portraits. I think you know the kind I'm talking about. The cow is right there on a hillock or something, centered in the frame. The scene is lush. It's a full side shot. The colors are vivid. The cow is sort of flat and rectangular. I mean, not like Mondrian flat and rectangular, just way more flat and rectangular than any actual cow actually is. Do you know what I'm talking about? The people who painted those portraits weren't trained in the finest schools of Paris. Mostly self-trained, a little naive, very perseverant. 
They were men who traveled from town to town telling landowners that they'd regret it if they didn't have a permanent record of how fat and shiny their fattest, shiniest cow was. At the time, tallow was a big deal. Animal husbandry was kind of new, so you were proud if you bred yourself some real fat cows, like absurdly fat cows. And so sometimes in the paintings, the bodies sort of dwarf the heads in crazy-looking ways. A combination of aspirational exaggeration and, and what were, let's be honest, probably some genuinely husky bovines. The best of the pictures have that quality you see in uh, maybe the most famous outsider painting. You probably know it, The Peaceable Kingdom by Edward Hicks. It's a kind of warmth. The humanity of the artist shines through that slight stiffness of the animal's picture. The unreality of that painting, its very slight stiltedness, reflects back the genuine care of the man who held that brush. The passion and the love of the artist read in that cow's dumb, dumb eyes. Anyway, this museum, this dream museum I'm building in my mind, it's fine if they have a wing for other stuff. Maybe some J.M.W. Turner pictures of ocean storms. I like those. But mostly, I want to look at those fat, flat, rectangular cows. And I want to feel the love in every brushstroke. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He got help from Christian Duenas. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Kara Hart. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Thank you, Dan. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Light in the Attic Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.